my name is Jeannie and welcome to the DMC podcast series. Uh, I'm with my brother today. Hello, I'm Callum. How has your week been, brother? What's, what's, fill me in, what's the goss? <laughs> I don't know, I think it's been at least a reasonable week. Um, I went to go and see some live music last night. And, oh, very nice. Which was fine. I mean, well, I had fun, but um, it wasn't really my kind of music, sort of pop punk music, which I don't listen to much, but... It was cheap, and I like going out, seeing friends. And... More my street. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Pop, pop a rubbish. <laughs> well, I don't know, yeah, maybe pop punk. And I, I play in a band too, and I went up to London to see my bandmate, and we, we practised a bit. Yeah. Oh, very nice. Yeah, so yeah, it's been, it's been a good weekend at least. The week was maybe a bit nondescript, but yeah. How was yours? Uh, it's been okay. I've going into a health kick, so I've spent last week every day... I went to the gym um, and ran on the treadmill for at least 25 minutes and ate healthy. And what I discovered is it's really boring. Um, <laughs> I felt amazing by the end of the week and then like had a KFC and ruined all my good work and like binged on um, piles of chocolate. But yeah, it's interesting because I did feel quite good. I just don't know how people do it, you know. A lot of grit. And determination. I, I just think if I start now, by the summer, I'll mm. look, you know, amazing. I always um, talk about my beach body 2025. Mm. So, yeah, <laughs> it's just the discipline, because you have to do it for months on end. I don't know how people do it. I suppose it's just routine. Mm. But mm-hmm, anyway, mm-hmm. Uh, I'll cry about it later. Uh, <laughs> so firstly, should we start with books? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. What have you been reading? Well... What haven't I been reading? <laughs> the one book I've read in like two months. Um, so, no, I, I have, that's my, one of my New Year's resolutions is to read more. How many How many books have you read this year? Okay, don't uh, shame me on mm-hmm. the book. I'm in the midst of reading a book that I'm not that into, so I'm finding it. My rule is I have to finish a book before I buy another. Mm. But I'm not really into this book, so it's a bit of a... Yeah. Drags. I won't be recommending that one. Well, just to let you know, I've read seven books this year. Well, <laughs> no one likes a nerd. <laughs> or a humble bragger. Or in a, school, or, 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 I would have bullied you. But... <laughs> or even a teacher, just a bragger. Um, but we're trying our best. So, I have lots on my list. Let's see, I'm getting defensive now. Uh, anyway. So this, I absolutely love this book. It's called Yerba Buena. By Nina Lacour. Have you heard of it? Uh, I think I bought it for you, didn't I? Oh yeah, I think you did. Yeah. So <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't. I, I don't know what it's about. I think. I'll, I'll read the um, description. Yeah, go. When Sarah Foster runs away from home at sixteen, she leaves behind not only the losses that have shattered her world, but the girl she once was, capable of trust and intimacy. Years later in Los Angeles, she is a sought-after bartender, renowned as much for her brilliant cocktails as the mystery that clings to her. Across the city, Emily Du Bois is in the holding pattern. In her seventh year and fifth major as an undergraduate, she yearns for the beauty and community her Creole grandparents cultivated, but is unable to commit. On a whim, she takes a job arranging flowers at the glamorous restaurant Yerba Buena and embarks on an affair with the married owner. When Sarah catches sight of Emily one morning at Yerba Buena, their connection is immediate, but the damage both women carry and the choices they have made will pull them apart again and again. At once exquisite and expansive, astonishing in its humanity and heart, Yerba Buena is a love story about two women finding their way in the world. Sounds good. 
Yeah, I... I was trying to find the words why I really like this book. I think other books I've recommended uh, to you uh, in general before are very descriptive, heavy in their approach, whereas the style of this book is um, very much about the dialogue and the characters. It's I love a type of book where it's a bit gossipy. It's mm. quite similar to another book I read called Tell Me Everything by Laura Kay. It's, you feel like you're eavesdropping on a conversation or a world. And I really like that style. Mm. Um, it's fun. It's yeah, it's, it's, yeah, it's a fun book. It ha- The vibe of this book is very much like sitting by the pool on holiday or, you know, when it's dark and cold outside and you're warm and inside with a nice cup of tea it has that sort of comfort blanket kind of yeah it's a really that's a great great word to describe it (laughs) i think yeah what i dislike is um perhaps as i was saying it's sort of less description heavy that is sort of its charm so i suppose it's what you're in the mood for what your Mm. taste is i think there could have been a bit more climax and drama at the end it felt like the story wasn't totally finished Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um it's a love story between two women and it doesn't really play on the stories perhaps we've the traditional tropes we've heard before of coming out and that struggle okay it's just a story between them they have other struggles should i read you a quick excerpt feel free yeah so this is when the two main characters are meeting for the second time she remembered the first time they met the way she'd snuck a glimpse of sarah at work right here at this bar in the restaurant that morning how right sarah's hand had felt in hers and when they shook and how sarah had heard about the breakfast table made the logical assumption and then put a stop to what might have been Emily wondered if Sarah remembered her too. Hoped she didn't, so she'd have a second chance at a first meeting. She turned to the menu, but Sarah was in her periphery, all Emily could see. Minutes passed while she tried not to stare. She knew she should read the menu so that Sarah could take her order when she came back. But Sarah coming back now seemed impossible. Emily wanted it so much. There were two bartenders. Each of them had half the seats. This was how it had always been. And yet Emily found herself irrationally worried that they'd trade sides. She needed to concentrate. She would choose a drink. Better yet, she would choose two and ask for Sarah's opinion so she'd stay longer in front of her. So Emily would hear more of her voice. Maybe they'd introduce themselves and Emily would take Sarah's hand in her own again. But when Sarah reappeared at Emily's place, she leaned against the bar and asked, when did you stop doing the flowers? (laughs) So, yeah, very gossipy. I love a bit of, you know, uh, star-crossed lovers Mm. and all that jazz. It's quite sweet. I mean, it's like, like, I mean, that is how you feel when you've got a crush, isn't it? I mean, yeah, it's very, it's very sweet. Very. So yes, Mm. and I'd give it. I've really. How many out of ten? I don't know why I loved it so much. I think because it's so light-hearted and um, warm Mm -hmm. in its approach. So nine out of ten. That's nice. Yeah. What about you? What's your recommendation? So mine is an autobiography. And it's called Hungry, and it's by Grace Dent, who is uh, the food critic for The Guardian, uh, or The Observer, I think now. But I think I found uh, I found Grace Dent when she was the uh, TV critic for The Guardian, and I really, really loved her writing. I thought she was really funny, and kind of like you said, quite like you know, um, your books were quite gossipy in her writing style. Yeah, just a, a brilliant writer. So I was quite excited to read uh, her autobiography. 
uh, which is, um, as the title would imply, mostly about food. Uh, or it's sort of a memoir via food. The back says, From an early age, Grace Dent was hungry. As a little girl growing up in Carrick, Carlisle, she yearned to be something bigger, to go somewhere better. Hungry traces Grace's story from growing up eating beige food to becoming one of Britain's best-loved food writers. It's also everyone's story, from cheese and pineapple hedgehogs and treats with your nan to the exquisite joy of a chip butty covered in vinegar and too much salt in the school canteen on a grey day. But it's also the Cadbury's fruit and nut from a hospital vending machine that helps a loved one remember uh, who really cares. Here's the real story of how we have lived, laughed and eaten over the past 40 years and the central role, central role food plays in either bringing us together or driving us apart, from toasting a large glass of warm Merlot to grimly polishing off a wilted salad. Heartfelt, witty and joyous, uh, joyous. Hungry shows us what we've always known to be true. Food, friends and family are the indispensable ingredients of a life well lived. Yeah, so I really loved it. I thought it was uh, again sort of like, sort of um, true to form, really, true to form in that she um, it's funny, gossipy, sort of warm. Yeah, yeah. really. I, I think really, and there was a real sort of snapshot of sort of I think seventies or eighties working class Britain mm. in the north, really. And I think that's. Um, I love that as well when it also can really get across their warmth um, in their tone mm, in writing a book. Yeah, I know definitely and. Clearly a lot of love for her family and that sort of thing, but having to sort of leave them behind to go to London to, you know, try and get into journalism and that sort of thing. And obviously has done very well for herself because she's a, a MasterChef now, I think. But I don't watch MasterChef. But no, me either. Yeah, but she's a judge on MasterChef. So, um, oh, okay. Yeah, and obviously a, a well-respected journalist. Do you want to read a little bit? Yeah, I mean, I can read the first page. But... I watched a MasterChef, um, uh, like... Red Nose Day thing with Ruby Wax and Claudia Winkleman mm-hmm. and Miranda Hart and it's so funny and oh yeah, that was very good yeah where, that made me laugh where they say the judges are quite mean about Ruby Wax's thing and then she says to camera she absolutely destroyed me <laughs> it's very intense I remember she was bashing up a crab I remember with a hammer yeah that was very funny that was pretty good yeah okay so chapter one Sketty Carlisle uh, 2017 where would you say Carlisle is, George? I shift uncomfortably in my seat. Where's Carlisle? The nurse repeats. My dad does not answer. Have you heard of it? I look at my phone, merely to self-soothe. Instead, an email from the Guardian editor arrives, begging for an incredibly late 100-word restaurant column that I promised to write on the 10.03 out of Euston. I did not write the piece. Instead, I placed my face against the cold window and drifted off, letting Milton Keynes become Wigan Northwestern, become uh, Shap, become home. Can you have a guess? She says. He looks at her and says nothing. His silence wounds me. The nurse marks something down on her notes. Uh, I look at her and maintain my gaze. She believes me, doesn't she? She always she looks away sharply. Hmm. It's a different style than I thought. I thought it was going to be quite factual. That's quite um, an intriguing tone of voice. Yeah, definitely. And to be fair, I mean, we were just sort of said how warm and sort of a. Uh, you know, sort of the whole funny and gossipy the whole thing is, and that, that to be fair, I mean that first uh, page probably isn't representative of the whole thing. Um, but she, um, it becomes you know kind of obvious as it goes on. But her dad um, has dementia, and that's sort of um, I think this came out in two thousand and one, so in twenty seventeen, that's what she was dealing with at the time was her dad having dementia. Yeah, so it starts I guess at the most recent, and then go, winds back to when she was little um, in Carlisle. But again, you know. Um, Again, I'd probably recommend it to anyone, really. I thought it was a great, warm, funny. That sounds very good. Yeah, no, it's great. I'll give it sort of an 8 out of 10. Oh, very good. Yeah.
Okay, look. Yeah. Right, so music now. Mm -hmm. So, uh, have you heard of Gabrielle Applin? Yes, through you. <laughs> ah, funny that. So I first heard Gabrielle Applin. I was doing the uni radio and I was waiting in the office and it was a summer's day and it was warm outside and I was the only one there and I was listening to the person who was in the radio before me mm -hmm. and one of her songs, this is not the song I'm recommending, that's how I first heard of her. Mm -hmm. And you know when you just associate an artist with a happy memory? Mm -hmm. And that's how I sort of view her music as that happy uh, time. This song is called Waking Up Slow. And I think the lyrics are beautiful. It's quite a slow tempo. You probably wouldn't hear it in a nightclub, but I just love the lyrics and um, the essence of the song. I can imagine it as like a first wedding song or something. Mm -hmm. um, so let's play a bit of that. What are your... Up your street, not up your street? Um, I actually quite like that. Oh, nice. really? <laughs> <laughs> and I had a nice melody. She's got a good voice. Mm. Yeah. Is she American? No. English? Yes. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I said that with an unconvincing look on my face. Um, yeah, no, she's... I'm pretty sure she's English. Okay. No, it's nice. No, I quite like that. Mm. Maybe not typically what I listen to, but I did like it. I really love the lyrics of all these nights uh, taste like gold when it, when I'm with you. It's like everything glows. Love it. Mm, yeah, and I thought it sounded like a love song. No. So, what's what's your recommendation? Okay, so mine is by an artist called Diane Cluck, and the song is Macy's Day Bird from the album Macy's Day Bird. <laughs> oh. uh, handy, same name, uh, from 2001. And I, I can't remember, I, I may have heard of her from the Juno soundtrack. I think she might be on uh, Easy To Be Around, the song might be on the Juno soundtrack. Okay. That's where I heard of it. And I was sort of listening to music from that sort of New York, sort of what, what was being called like anti-folk at the time. I think she lives in Pennsylvania now or something. Yeah, but, I think um, the early naughty, some of the songs are, are bangers. Yeah, I mean, this isn't really a banger, but... Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but no, there's people like she's like um, Coco Rosie and Devendra Banhart, those sorts of musicians I quite liked. And then, but I think I got into her a bit later, and I went to go and see her perform. And I hadn't heard this song; it's from an earlier album, and I just hadn't heard it before. And it was it was one of those quite surprising things where I just find it a lot of gigs if I don't really know what music's being played, they, they all kind of drift into each other. But this song was quite distinctive. I just really loved it, and I sort of I think I googled the lyrics or something to figure out what it was and it's a really brilliant song and there's this she's I think, I'm pretty sure she's sort of a classically trained singer and what was quite noticeable about this was she's that for part of it she sings off key and I think that might be purposeful which I thought was kind of an interesting take I mean um or an interesting technique that's probably more why, why does she do that I don't know, but maybe just to add um, more flavour to it, or yeah, just sort of a different sort of sound, I guess. Uh, yeah, it's. Um, I think it's uh, a love song to her girlfriend, I think. Yeah, I, lo I think the lyrics are really brilliant, and uh, and it sounds like uh, it was recorded in her front room, and I kind of like that, just sort of um, immediacy of it, really, that she probably just wrote this song, sat down and pressed record. Here is Macy's Day Bird by Diane Cluck.
Ooh, very, uh, not what I was expecting at all. Very, um, one of those songs where you have to listen to each lyric, make you stop and listen to actually the words rather than just sort of hmm. bopping. Yeah, I think she's a great lyricist. I think, um, mm. and it's, I mean, the music, um, quite somber. Yeah, really somber. I mean, I, I guess, I mean, it's sort of, well, I guess it's sort of a folk tradition, really, isn't it? I guess, sort of protest songs and all that was sort of, I mean, it was. Bob Dylan or whatever with his guitar, so you'd have to listen to the lyrics or um, Joni Mitchell or whatever. And I, I mean, she reminds me a bit of Joni Mitchell just vocally, but uh, yeah, like you said, I think the lyrics are pretty wonderful. I mean, I think the uh, I decided not to be a gift horse mouth looker. Mm-hmm. I think it's a brilliant lyric. I uh, love how our music tastes are not particularly this time, but it's usually like you say something like, like that, and then it's me. You know, with Katy Perry, like, <laughs> yeah, California, like, I really love this bopping tune. <laughs> well, I like that too. Yeah. Just more. Out of ten, what, is that one of your faves? Oh, yeah, without a doubt. Yeah, no, I, I used to listen to it all the time. And mm. I, I think, it, again, like, sort of just, um, I think you almost feel like you're there with her when she's sort of singing out. And I, I assume that's because of the sort of low production it's values. It's very intimate. Yeah, yeah, that's the perfect word for it. It's just sort of. Very intimate song. Mm, lovely, thank mm. you. So now we move on to film. So I would like to recommend When They See Us. It's on Netflix. It's about the Central Park Five. Uh, I'll read the synopsis. In the spring of 1989, five boys of colour are arrested, interrogated and coerced into confessing the attack of a woman in Central Park. As the jogger case stirs tensions nationwide, the boys' families and their lawyers prepare for a bitter legal battle against the city of New York. So I felt really moved when I watched this. Mm. Um, I purposely didn't read much about the real story that um, this show is based on. And I'm glad I didn't, because you kind of know what's going to happen, but you still, watching it, feel very protective of the characters and powerless as the story unfolds. The acting, especially of the man who plays Corey Wise, which is one of the boys, is really compelling. Um, and I watched it. It's one of these things I just binged in one sitting. Um, it's obviously very sad, but I think it's important for something like this where the boys are detested by the public and this is due to the terrible way they're treated by the police and the discrimination they face some things some stories aren't always what they seem and this story really demonstrates this in a really powerful way um and the style and the setting of the production i really enjoyed the only thing about it i would say is i would have explored the life of the woman who was attacked a bit more it's obviously not really about her story and her perspective but what happens to her is so horrific I felt they could have, they do touch on it mm. in the show, but I just think it's such a big part of what happens to them, her story as well, that um, it could have been explored a bit more. I think they could have emphasised a little bit more the horror of what she faced. It's really, really moving. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just thought it was fantastic. I, I'd say eight out of ten. Oh, okay. Mm. It's definitely, uh, definitely worth it. Worth a watch then. Yeah. <laughs> What's your uh, recommendation? Okay. Okay, so my choice is uh, the film La Belle et la Bête. Um, it's obviously a French film, Beauty and the Beast. Mm. And it is by the poet, filmmaker, writer, artist extraordinaire Jean Cocteau. Uh, Cocteau addresses his version of 
Madame la Prince de Beaumont's 18th century fairy tale uh, to what remains of the child in all of us and proceeds to take us into a realm of enchantment where nothing, not even the candelabra or the decorative carvings in the beast's castle is quite what it seems. Uh, where ugliness masks integrity and handsome faces conceal treachery. Je uh, Josette Day is luminous yet feisty as beauty and Jean Marais gives one of his best performances as the beast. At once brutal and gentle, rapacious and vulnerable, shamed and repelled by his own bloodlust. Uh, cinematography, lighting, costume and set designs combined to make La Belle et la Bête uh, a thrilling piece of cinema. I apologise if I butchered any of the, uh, the French names there. Well, what, what's it actually about? <laughs> 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 it is the, the classic story of Beauty and the Beast. So hmm. a man finds himself in the Beast's castle, uh, picks uh, a rose, uh, the Beast appears and wants this man dead, and wants to kill the man. Uh, so he swaps uh, himself or his daughter to go and live with the Beast. Uh, the Beast then tries to pressure her into marrying him, which she always refuses. Uh, but she gradually grows fonder of him, and then she has to go home because her father's sick. And I think he—I can't remember. I think he dies, but I can't, um, can't remember particularly clearly. And in that time, the beast gets sick. She then chooses to go back to him. Obviously, like, he dies, and then comes back as a handsome prince. Yeah. What's good about this version? Well, I, I guess I really love because it wasn't—it was made in 1946, so it's um, obviously really, you know, probably coming up to you know 100 years old. Mm. So there's obviously no special effects. So sort of. Um, just to, in terms of like sort of just the enchanted castle, just just the things they were doing to make it seem enchanted, I thought were just really brilliant. Like sort of a, I, I mean, I don't know if I want to give too much away, really, but yeah, I don't know how much I want to give away because I, I just thought some of the things were, just some of the ideas that they used were just so sort of fantastic. Like the um, oh, I'll give away like a small one, but like sort of the candelabras are held by like uh, hands coming out of the walls and that sort of thing, and it really kind of makes it quite creepy and. You know, pretty magical. So yeah, I just love that. And there was sort of several little things like that throughout the film that I just thought were really brilliant touches and really made me laugh out loud. I thought they were so sort of. Um, Is that as squeaky yeah. as uh, you know Disney's very sort of um, squeaky clean and magical? Is it darker or lighter? Uh, I mean, it was I mean the rating's PG, so it's not exactly you know horror. It's not The Exorcist. But I, I just mean stylistically, <laughs> is it meant to be sort of? Whisk you away into a fairy tale, or yeah, I mean it's probably. I mean, you. Could, I don't know if you put this in front of kids now if they would like it. I mean, well, a it's in French, so you know. I mean, like you know, unless you're showing it to French children, but maybe I don't know. Who knows? Maybe maybe it's a. Uh, it was obviously considered the sort of classic of French cinema, but I don't know in terms of like if it would be sort of considered like a classic of children's French cinema. Probably not. Maybe it's a bit too scary for children. I mean, I thought the beast just looked like a big. Teddy bear, really. Um, that was probably the, was a shame. Really, I thought that was probably one of the least um, effective things about it was what the beast looked like. I thought they maybe could have put more shadow on him or something to make him more mysterious. But I never made a film, so you know, and I've never made a film in 1946 without special effects. So who am I to judge? But um, I've, I've seen some of Cocteau's other stuff. I've seen all um, uh, Orpheus or Orphe, I think it is in French. And again, it was really just sort of brilliant just some of the um the things that he used sort of in in lieu of special effects really just sort of you know kind of water like rather than mirrors and that mm. sort of thing and when you know um Orpheus goes sort of down to hell he walks through the mirror and you know which is clearly water and all this sort of and yeah just um 
Yeah, really fantastic. I, I thought it was brilliant. Really Do brilliant. you um, like watching films with subtitles as much as um, other f- films in English? Yeah. I'm happy to give anything a go, really. I mean... Um, so I always find... Because mm. I don't mind. It depends what mood I'm in. Because mm. if you're feeling a bit lazy, you don't want to... Because it's more like, um, you know, you're... It's like you're playing tennis, but the other way, you know, <laughs> trying to look at. Um, but I think sometimes there's such rich uh, cinema and different languages you can miss out if you don't give uh, other things a go. Yeah, no, definitely. Nothing. So I mean, I love Fellini, the Italian director, and that's all in Italian. So yeah, I mean, I guess you know, if I'm tired or whatever, you know, you maybe want to stick on some rubbish and fall asleep in front of it, or not have to think. So maybe you know, if I was a bit knackered. But um, I probably wouldn't go for um, subtitles. But no, yeah, it doesn't. I've never, I've never, I don't, I don't know if I've ever really thought about it. So I think it's a good film's a good film. So thank you for that. Uh, good recommendations mm-hmm. um, this week. Um, anything you'd like to add? No, I'm okay. Thank you. Oh, good. Okay. <laughs> Th- thank you for those. That sounds um, really good. Uh, intriguing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we'll see you next time. That concludes the podcast for this week. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. <laughs> oh, in, in time with each other.